how do we help founders on day one move really, really quickly, being equity owners so reliant on the upside, and then just making them feel like they're superheroes, right, on day one. Welcome to the Vitalize Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, the Director of Marketing at Vitalize Venture Capital. On today's episode, we have Peter Liu, Managing Partner at Revelry Venture Partners, a venture firm with a unique model. They're based out of New Orleans, doing something different with a venture studio as well as a fund. We dive into all of that in this episode. Let's get started. Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yes. And thanks for making the time. So Peter, how did you get into venture in the first place? Yeah. So um, I, I got first introduced to venture uh, in 2011 when I was working at B of A Merrill Lynch and their investment banking team covering mostly retailers and fast growing brands. And one of the first deals that I worked on was the Skullcandy IPO. And so I got to meet the team there and really understand the ins and outs of an IPO how it was a capital raising event, how it was a marketing event, and most importantly, how it was a liquidity event. When I saw the returns that were generated to the venture investors and the early investors in the company, I said, that's that's the part of the risk reward <laughs> spectrum that I want to play in. And so um, basically at that point, at that time, a lot, a lot, most of my colleagues were going into hedge funds and private equity, the typical stuff. Again, this was 2011, 2012. Venture wasn't this super cool job that people <laughs> wanted. Um, and I started knocking on venture doors. And that's when I met the, um, the team, JB, Tony, Chris, Adam, and others at Pritzker Group. Um, and, and what they were doing was pretty interesting. So they had two LPs, JB and Tony Pritzker. They were focused on early stage investing, some late stage investing as well. They were out of Chicago doing a really fairly unique model. Um, and I applied for that job, um, along many others. There were many other <laughs> jobs and opportunities, and, uh, and 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 that was the one that I got. So I, I'd never been to Chicago before that. I moved to Chicago, thought it was a two-year gig, um, uh, and kind of go to B-School, the traditional route, and actually ended up staying there for about nine years um, before launching RVP. Okay, with RVP then, I know you guys have a unique model. You're doing a lot of different things, and even just from researching the different parts of it, components of it. Tell us more about that model, what that all consists of too. Yeah, yeah. So we started RVP. Um, it was really a concept, honestly, that I, that's been running through my head for about five years. Um, really, when I was going through the Coffin Fellowship and we had to complete sort of our thesis, right, the, the thought leadership project. And for me, that was just trying to understand the evolutions of the venture models and what was next. Like the question was, what was next? So I interviewed about 200 founders, another 50 or so investors, um, and just trying to identify what did founders look for? What did VCs, what were VCs doing to kind of address the changing nature of, of venture and the competition? Um, and it was pretty interesting. Like it came out, like some of the, the takeaways there were, you know, investors really thought that brand mattered. It was really at the top of the list when we surveyed. Founders said, hey, look, like all they want is really high conviction early stage investors that believed in them, yep. that had the ability to allow them to move fast, either through value added services or network. Um, and, and at the end of the day, it's about people that they like. And so um, from talking to some of those investors, there really became like kind of two predominant models. And, and we're seeing it right now in our marketplace. One is this barbell approach. Um, and, and on one end of that barbell approach is, hey, we're going to do multi-stage 
crossover investing. We're going to keep accruing value for companies at inception all the way through to exit, or if they go public, continue to continue to invest in that and create value as they go public. And the other is specialization, whether at stage, geography, or sector. Um, and then another model that we started to see starting to emerge was this incubation model, which was, hey, how do we help? great founders build companies? How do we provide the resources, capital being one of those uh, among many, to help great founders just build really, really quickly and do it at lower risk and not have to deal with a lot of the the challenges maybe that, that founders have to deal with when they navigate venture for the first time. And so, again, that was five years ago, looking at all of that. And when I moved to New Orleans um, at the beginning of the pandemic, I met my partner who had started Revelry, which was a Basically, the initial iteration of that was a, a, a dev shop, right? Building software for larger companies, um, moving into what maybe we call today a venture studio, startup studio, incubating ideas, um, and starting to invest, but without a fund. And so with my background and kind of these things, I was like, this is exactly kind of a model that I've been thinking about for a while, which is how do we help founders on day one move really, really quickly being equity owners, so we're lined on the upside, and then just making them feel like they're superheroes, right, on day one. And for the same reasons, you know, can we create a, a, a great risk reward profile at pre-seed and seed that's beyond just, hey, we can pick better um, and we're getting into things early, right? We have diversification. So that was kind of the impetus for starting uh, RVP and um, our model is pretty pretty simple. You know, we're managing about 15 million. Um, about 10 million of that is going into uh, traditional investing. So we invest in mostly uh, pre-seed or seed stage opportunities. Software as a service is the primary business model. We invest nationally, and then um, we also incubate companies. So we have about another five million dollars to, you know, fund founders really at the time when they're thinking about starting something new, leaving a company, quitting their job, sometimes before even having that conversation with their spouse to even do it. And we um, help them with ideation, research and analysis, customer discovery, design thinking, business modeling, all the way through to leveraging our engineering design resources for prototyping and spin out. So what's exciting is we're, we're, you know, we're building an investment firm, but we also get to scratch an itch that I've had for a long time of, of building companies. You know, every investor that, has done this for a decade or more, always thinks the grass is green and wants to build companies. So this kind of scratches that itch selfishly. Um, and it's exciting building out sort of that multidisciplinary team to be able to do a lot of the incubation and, 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 and efforts there. So um, yeah, that's, that's the model that we have. You know, I think by, by doing it this way, like I said, you know, we help founders on day one kind of have that belief and conviction to go after something we're de-risking oftentimes the design and the, the technology and the product risk that probably a lot of early stage investors or venture investors in general don't want to take. They want to see a product. They yeah. want to see some traction, which kind of creates a chicken and the egg problem for a lot of founders. Um, and, and we're doing that in New Orleans, which selfishly is where we live, but in a, in a market like the South and Southeast where there's a lot of really smart people, like we say, you know, genius has no border. And there's a lot of really talented people here that don't have the network or the access or know how to play the game that maybe somebody that grew up in the Bay Area that, you know, whose father was an entrepreneur or mother was an entrepreneur and just knows how to do that, right? Like if you're not networked, you can't break in the door. How do you get all of this done? And so, yeah, it's pretty interesting. 
with that, Peter, I appreciate the breakdown. Raising the fund for that. Take me through that process of raising the fund, how that was. I'm curious because you do have this unique model format and it has yeah. it is you know, has its advantages, obviously, but like, you know, we've gone through that. Like just the process is a lot to raise a fund yeah. or raise funding for anyone ever. So like yeah. just take me through that process for, for you, Peter. How has that been? Yeah. So we we set out to raise uh, a ten million dollar fund one. Um it was really just a random number that we thought was is a nice round number. It's 10 million. It seemed like it was something that we can do, you know, in a, in a year or so. Um, and that's, that's probably how long it took us. You know, we've, we've been fundraising for a year. We're, we're actually overcommitted on at 15 million now. We're probably going to do a final close this month. Um, and, and it's the hardest thing I've ever done. Right. Uh, you know, Pritzker group, for those that don't know, is really a family office. And we had, you know, it, it, it's a family office on paper if you had to like check a box, but it was as institutional as it could get with, you know, how we structured things, how we invested, how, you know, with a back office and all of that. And, you know, those, those eight or nine years there, I, I didn't have to fundraise. And so it wasn't like some of our peers leaving a, a firm with built-in GP Rolodex or LP Rolodexes. I had to kind of build that from scratch. Luckily, you know, I was able to get, you know, some some folks that were really close to me, um, including the Pritzkers involved early on to kind of jumpstart the fundraising process. We we picked a strategy to do a do a pretty short and, and quick close to be able to start deploying. I think it's always helpful to go out and be able to show and not tell. Um, and so we did that, start making investments. And then after that, just started building relationships, right? Like um, there's a lot of there's a lot of family offices and wealth in our region down here in the Gulf South, I think venture is a new asset class to them. And we had to, we had to educate. It was really just going on listening towards educating, explaining why, you know, venture made sense in their asset allocations. Many of our LPs were their first fund that they've ever invested in and were the first exposure they had in venture, um, which is pretty exciting to, to have, to have that opportunity to help them. You know, okay, we, we have to double click on that, Peter, because yeah, I know there's, yeah, there's yeah. people in other areas who are trying to do the same thing, raising funds in different areas that don't have the same group of people who are used to investing into funds, but may who have may have a capital. And this has come up before. I've talked to like a lot of women who have the capital, but aren't interested in investing in funds yet, but who could yeah. in theory do like that same type of thing. Take me to those conversations, maybe what's been helpful around the way of like introducing them to the asset class and everything. I would be curious to know your perspective on that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so, you know, a lot of the conversations that we had was just really explaining kind of the the risk reward, um, explaining the mechanics of, of, you know, what a fund investment looks like. You know, you'd be surprised how many folks thought they would have to wire the entire amount up front. And we had to explain the concept of capital calls. Yeah. Um, and these are very sophisticated investors. They just haven't invested in in, in this asset class before. Right. Um, but I think what really helped was we were, you know, and everybody is, is in a fairly low yield environment in public equities. So, you know, most of the traditional asset allocation of, you know, have this much in public equities, have this much in bonds, have this much in real estate, you know, all of those asset classes, their yields were cut dramatically over the last few years. And so it's an interesting time for a lot of these family offices because they're searching for yield. And where does that yield come from when you look at the options that are available? Well, well venture is it, privates, right? So, um, so it, you know, having that narrative, having that backdrop certainly helped. Um, and then just really explaining, you know, how 
pre-seed and seed investing kind of creates that greatest risk reward profile in venture. Um, and, and then showing them what our model is to mitigate risk and how we can generate returns. Um, but you know, that's a, that's a conversation. You know, I think it's really important to have a, you know, very unique, why us, just like we ask founders, like why us, why is our model interesting? Why is our model going to help improve the returns um, in a, in a traditionally asset risky asset class? How do we mitigate some of the key risks? What are the risks that we're willing to take? What are the risks we're not willing to take um, and get people comfortable and explaining that in clear, like English, <laughs> you know, not, not Twitter venture speak. That was yeah. also something that we had to, we had to do. You know, it's interesting you mentioned that because just with how many funds have popped up, you know, sure. needing to be unique and stand out. And then you see big venture firms doing like $400 million seed funds. And you're just like, yeah. wait, what? And then the industry is wild. So if you don't have a way to stand out, especially with these LPs investing in the funds, like you mentioned, some may be just starting, but others are like, oh yeah, we're going to invest in the same ones we've always invested in. And like, you know, how do you stand out and be different when you are kind of having this new access to capital, which- right. I mean, we're right. definitely thinking about that a lot at Vitalize, which is a big reason why we launched Vitalize Angels, our community, uh, yeah, focus on future of work, same thing. It's like you're trying to be more focused in the industry to stand out and have an advantage yep. in some capacity. One thing I'm really curious about with you guys then, with your model inherently helping founders at the early stages then, how are you evaluating founders that early? That's one of the, the hardest things when you're like totally. pre-product or just have a product ready to go or just about to launch in six months. Like, yeah. How are you evaluating at that earliest stages, Peter? It's hard. Yeah, it's just that's a that's a great question. We, we, we have to be mindful that just because we have these resources um, that we don't try to do everything because, you know, some of it is, oh, can this team actually build this product? We can build it with them. That that's not a reason to invest in a company if it doesn't really check a lot of the other boxes or the founding team doesn't have some of these other um, kind of traits that we look for. But, you know, we try to take a venture lens to everything. Can this be an opportunity to generate outsized returns for our limited partners? Um, is this something that can scale really, really quickly with the right resources? Um, is this something that has high margins um, and, and great economics and can be capital efficient? Um, and, and oftentimes we understand that like at Precy, and you guys know this, right? It's, it's more about the team than anything. That idea um, that, that we may start with you know, that probably goes out the door six, eight months down the road when we realize, oh, actually, this is what the market wants. Oftentimes, you know, when we make an investment, when we make a commitment into writing a check, it already feels like they're a portfolio company because we've spent a lot of time going through sort of a, a, an ideas by DMAs, validation process, just that back and forth. Um, and that's super helpful. But then there's all the other traits that we look for, like because we are so focused on mitigating the product risk. Right? Some funds will try to mitigate the go-to-market risk because they have a deep Rolodex of corporate customers so they can help them get customers day one. Others will say, hey, we'll help you with marketing and, and we have a million Twitter followers, so we'll get you a ton of traffic. We really just specialize and focus on the product risk. Therefore, we are relying on the teams that we back to have the ability to sell, a, a unique way of, of, of selling something, a unique understanding of the pain points and the products generally having, you know, if we're back, we do a lot of B2B SaaS, you know, a Rolodex of customers that they can call on and get early pilot customers or early, early users. So we look for that go to market mitigation, and then we, we can help them with the product mitigation. And, and in combination, it can be pretty cool. 
With that too, I know you mentioned that before, either on the website or somewhere around that, you, know, you mentioned the unique insights around customer acquisition, yeah. for instance. I would love to hear either an example of that or what you're looking for on that. I know when I, uh, when I talked to Matt Conwell about that, he had some interesting customer acquisition stories where founders were thinking about it differently. And I bring this up because oftentimes founders are like, you see a deck and it's like, I'm going to use Facebook ads and Google and like, right, go on, right. go on. Like what's next? Like what, what how is that going to scale? That cost is going to be insane. Like I'm curious from your perspective, Peter, what you've seen or what you interest or look at in terms of, you know, kind of unique insights around customer acquisition. Yeah. That, that point, you know, it, it's hard to explain that point without kind of in a broader sense of the who, the what, the why, right. Yeah. And, and, and the who is the team. We are, we just talked about that, the why, the purpose behind it. Right. So, you know, understanding the, a pain point, understanding a customer, the end user really, really well. Like, you know, when you talk to somebody, they just understand, they understand who they are, that ICP, yeah. they understand how they want to consume this, how they want, what, what the likely price points are. And they have and their hypothesis to start, but they at least are rooted in experience and understanding of a market. And then the how is, is the unique insights on customer acquisition. We've seen some really interesting ways to, like one, is uh, we have a company that basically just gave away a product for free. Um, and instead of charging it, doing pilots, they gave it for free and got people hooked onto it. And mm. then as soon as they were hooked on it after, call it three months, they didn't even know they needed to pay for it. You throw up a paywall and they go, oh, wait, I don't know if I want to do this. As soon as you do that, you call them up, right? And you say, hey, what, what are your thoughts like around the product, are you enjoying it? I, I saw you didn't, you know, you haven't renewed. By the way, you're, we're gonna, you know, you're gonna lose your um, license in seven days. Um, but to extend your license, why don't you tell us a little bit more about your pain points? Tell us a little bit more how your organization might want to adopt this. Who at your organization is the decision maker? Basically, get the user to give me the sales pitch and who to call on that is ultimately making the decision for this bottom-up sales product. So yeah. then you call that person, the decision maker, and you basically regurgitate all the pain points that you've heard the users say. And by the way, you've got 20, 30, 50 users already using this when you like to buy the enterprise license. Um, that tactic is so powerful. And, and it's about, you know, most will say, hey, we, we want to charge for this. We want to, we want to see who's willing to pay for this. But, you know, the early discovery phase, you're trying to learn about the user, you're trying to learn about who, how they make decisions, trying to arm yourself with how to sell this. So that, that, that to me was like, oh my God, when I heard they were doing it, I was like, that's brilliant, right? That's, that's awesome. It's also, it's interesting you know, mentioning that like, it depends obviously on so many factors and if any founders listening around that, it's right. like, it depends on a lot of factors, depends on what your burn is. Can you, can you actually do that? You know, when do you need revenue? All that sort of thing. But it is interesting to use that as a tactic if you're getting the information, the data you need, which at this stage, that's really all you're after. Yeah. Yeah. You know? yeah. So um, I'll give you one more example that I think sure. is pretty interesting. We have a company called Media Kits. Um, they're basically a, a digital resume for creators, especially serving the long tail. And this goes back to a deep understanding of their users. So one of the campaigns that they ran was they gave away a five dollar uh, a Twitch Twitch sponsorship, basically. Um, and so that doesn't sound like a lot, right? It's a five dollar customer acquisition cost to get someone to use the product. But what they realized was even five, a $5 subscription to a Twitch channel means a lot for these types of users, for, especially on the long tail. It, it means a lot. They freak out when someone does that for them. And, and it, was, it was an awesome, awesome campaign. I mean, they were signing up three, 400 Twitch streamers a day 
to, it, to sign up for the product. And, and it was, it was something to speak that came from just understanding who their user, who their target users were and what made them tick. No, I, I love that. I love that insight. I think it, there's so many different ways to go about it when founders are being like unique around it. And I think, you know, one, one that comes to mind, I would talk to recently is, is Jordy Hayes at party round and them doing drops for their yeah, company. Yeah. Like that's, that's a great strategy. Like you literally hire some people on Upwork, help design it, mock it up. Your team has the ideas for it. You test different ones out. You, you know, you inherently like do things that you think will go viral yourself because you yeah. enjoy it. And obviously it's not going to work for every company to do it because they executed very well. Yeah. But in terms of acquisition, like genius. Absolutely. I got, genius. I got one more because this is my favorite of all time. I have to yeah. share it. Yeah, let's so, go. <laughs> so, um, one of the companies that I invested in, they were selling in enterprises and they would ship a, a remote helicopter in a box to, okay. to the, their target, you know, to the companies, but they wouldn't include the remote. And so here's this remote helicopter and this box is the toy without a remote with the company logo, all the call to actions on it. And, you know, people get this in the office. They're like, wait, I want the remote. They would call and be like, this is interesting. Like, where's the remote? And, and it generated leads that way. Again, brilliant. <laughs> there, so hopefully that, a bunch of people are getting remote helicopters after listening to this. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to drop podcasting as an option. Cause I know Eric at lemon pie is like an agency and they do a podcast editing and everything. He's, they said they have a pipeline of millions of revenue because they just interviewed their like target customer basically. Yeah. Like things like that. When you're like, you go beyond strictly paying for it as acquisition is like, Oh, and you see the traction from that and you can obviously grow from that, which, which is amazing. And I know yeah. you, you mentioned like one or two companies there already, but also just in terms of your, where you're investing in everything, you're going to see a lot of your own things at this stage. What are some particular areas you, you get very excited about? I know there's a lot of stuff you're investing in all across the board, but any yeah. particular areas, Peter, you really get are passionate about as well. Yeah. So um, one area in particular, and I've been looking, you know, for a while, even since my last firm is this intersection of like the solopreneur and all of the benefits, services, and, um, and, and, and things that maybe an employer used to give to an employee. You know, when you break up that employer-employee relationship, you know, things like benefits, things like um, just the fact, like just even taking taxes out of your, your paycheck when you get yeah. it, right? Like little things that, that now just go away and solopreneurs need to figure that out. Um, it's really interesting. And, and over the last few years, there's been a ton of tools that do one of those things well. Like great tools for savings, like that, that take money out of your 1099 paycheck and, and put that aside for tax free. There's great things that'll sell you benefits for a freelancer or a sole. But at the end of the day, what we're seeing is a lot of these individuals now are paying for five or six solutions. And all of a sudden that adds up 300 bucks a month, 400 bucks a month. So I, I'm, I'm interested in finding something that is easy, elegant to use, still cheap enough, but provides a lot of that in a single box, like out-of-box experience for solopreneurs to do. Um, being down here in the Gulf South, you know, and in, in going through my first hurricane last year, I think there's a lot of interesting aspects of resiliency, like climate change resiliency and how software can play a role into these things, both on the B2B and B2C side. Um, and, and, you know, it's not just here in the Gulf South, it's now, you know, global, right? So we're looking into software plays, you know, not maybe, you know, hardware or things like that, but mainly, you know, software plays or services that are going after that space that can, again, uh, ameliorate some of the pains that many people face whenever there's a natural disaster. Um, we also just love, love, love basic, boring vertical SaaS. 
right? There's so many industries that yeah. are very, very antiquated where the processes are just bad, right? And so, um, you know, building the next generation, delightful SaaS cloud-based product um, that, you know, on day one can generate revenue. We do those all day, every day. There's, there's a reason why there's so many of those, obviously. <laughs> there's obviously a need for that. I will say yeah. to your first, your first point too, like, yeah, it's the tools that are supportive of like the creator economy too, kind of ties into that same solopreneur totally. thing totally. you mentioned. And it seems like with the trend of how many we see in terms of creators, more and more creators, more and more platforms supporting creators, all the infrastructure behind that, everything behind that needs to be built. There's going to be a lot more tools with that. Yep. And then you yep. have the whole Web3, like it's just so many things that you can right, go into right. when you when you hit that, which is where we also kind of find that fascinating because obviously we're focused on future work. So we're always looking at that too. And it's just like, right. there's going to be a lot of companies in that space um, that get built. And, and to your point of climate as well, you said software with that. Do you have an example of a company that you like in that space? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll mention one of the companies in my portfolio because I'm biased, yeah. um, but we invest in a company called Cluey Consumer. Um, and Cluey, you know, they, they're they basically a, um, a web app, web extension that, so when you visit a brand's page or a brand's page on a, a retailer um, like Amazon, it'll tell you how that brand aligns with you from a people, planet, politics standpoint. Mm. Um, what's really interesting there is it, it's getting users to input their values and it's building values models on individuals. So with iOS 15 and with all the changes around privacy on the internet, the traditional lookalike models are starting to like not be that helpful anymore. You know, like, I don't know, yeah. across our portfolio, we're seeing companies that traditionally has done well, like are having some issues on the CAC front because of those changes. And then now they're having to reorientate, develop new strategies. But one of the things about this is not only is this helpful from a, just from a, a climate standpoint, right? Like if people can choose and make better purchase dishes, vote with their dollars is how Mary Claire talks about it a lot, but it also ultimately creates this really powerful data set that, you know, from, from a permission to user base, allow brands to reach out to them um, and, and sell them products. No, I love that. We had that. It reminds me of when I was in business school, they, we had someone pitched that exact idea. I think, you know, like a hypothetical, you don't actually do much that's of value in that, in that way. But that idea, someone had yeah. it was very similar to that. It was just like, oh yeah, this makes total sense. Like people actually care about that. So right. why not just tell them in like the easiest way possible? And like, yeah, that makes total sense. I'm glad you brought that up. I know we're like almost out of time here. Uh, is there any other company? I'm just going to be one more, one more chance. Any other company you think is, doing something that's unique or is it a good example for something that you found where you're like, yes, we want to invest for these reasons. And so far it's, it's been going well. Obviously you're a year in, not, not too far in. I mean, in your sure, sure. Of anything else. Yeah. We're, you know, we've made 11 investments. So, you know, in, in almost a year in, so they're all very exciting to me, um, but I'll <laughs> say one because web three is such an interesting category right now for a lot of reasons. Um, but the plays that we've been looking at are, are call it web 2.5 right? Um, companies that are bridging traditional web with these distributed crypto native businesses. And, and that company is actually a New Orleans company called Gilded. So what Gilded does is Gilded provides basically three different back office products for companies, both crypto native and traditional enterprise. So the first one is uh, an accounting tool that allows you to connect all of your custodian wallets, your hardware wallets, your existing wallets as a business and track all of that, create a ledger that you can then integrate into QuickBooks or send to your CPA to file your you know, income tax filings. Um, the second product is MassPay. So it allows you to split up uh, payroll for your entire organization with fiat and crypto. So 
um, makes it really easy to send things to you know one wallet or a hundred wallets or a thousand wallets doesn't matter and you don't have to input those things individually and pray something gets to those um, with integrations in existing HR platforms so you don't have to kind of switch how you do things so they've got the the, the mass pay product they've got the accounting product and then the last product that they provide is um, I'm trying to, I'm blanking out on it now we can always link it in the show notes no no, no worries. I, I'm glad you bring that up. I think there's so many companies. That's why I love like, to ask them from the investor perspective. Because obviously, they have there's a reason why they invested. So like, I want to get the ins and outs of that. I, I would love to go deeper at some point in a different show around like super deep into the investments and what what you can actually share about it, of course. But I appreciate you sharing a few of those as well. And where's the best spot for people to connect with you, uh, learn more about your fund as well? Yeah, so I'm uh, I, I'm pretty responsive to my DMs on Twitter, despite you know. <laughs> the, all the craziness that happens on Twitter. Um, that's a that's a great way from a direct communication standpoint. We we also you know we we have a a no warm intro policy at our firm. Part of our mission of trying to just democratize access to venture across this region that's really underserved. Um, and so they can go to revelry.vc. Um, it's a very short form that they can fill out, and it's basically all the things I would ask them in a DM anyway about their company. Um, and they have an opportunity to also upload a deck, which we review in batches and we respond. Um, so if, if it's a fit, so that, that, those are probably the best ways. And then, you know, warm intros. Um, but look again, we try to make ourselves accessible. Every, any founder out there right now can, can DM me at New Orleans VC and I will take a look. And I'm glad you responded to that tweet of mine where I was asking different investors to come forward. I'm like, hey, if you're investing, let so people know. I, I wanted to make sure we, we talked about that. So <laughs> I don't think you even know this. We actually, I actually just committed to an investment because of that thread. Let's go. To somebody that I met on Twitter. So appreciate it, man. Oh, I'm happy to do it. And that's like... The when people think about, so I'll give my little tangent here. When people think about Twitter, and there's a lot of people who are just trying to grow on Twitter for any particular reason, I don't know why. I think of it as like, how can I actually be useful to people? And like, there's founders on there who want to connect with investors. Right. A lot of them who don't have the background, who are disadvantaged because they don't have the connections or understand like who is in venture, who are angels, whatever. So like anything you can do, and like a, it took like what, like two seconds to tweet that. Like I was just thought, okay, angels, okay, it's hard enough, or whatever. And like just connect it that tweet has like a couple hundred thousand views and i've had so many investors say they have like a hundred dms from that of companies and so like that is my little part of like trying to help founders out where you can actually be helpful yeah. as, a, as a vc is like they need the help getting access to the founder the vcs and, and angels and connected right. same thing other tweeting like on hiring I, I thought the same thing like a lot of people are trying to hire like what are the resources who are the people to help them out and like Twitter is an amazing platform if you connect people in the right way. So I'm so glad to hear that it's been helpful. You invested. It, it's uh, been extremely helpful. Like what, what you and Gail and the entire Vitalize team are doing, I mean, it's it's awesome. It's, it's amazing <laughs> for the industry and, and, and it's you're spot on. There's so many people that don't have those networks in, a, in an industry that traditionally has been in a, tr a non-transparent network driven industry. Like, so, yeah. um, to just open that up and, and create those bridges, like it's, it's, it's really, really cool. I'm, I'm, I'm in awe of what you guys are building and, and I'm excited to, to work with you guys. Well, I really appreciate that, Peter. And thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. Thank you, Justin. All right. Talk to you later. Hey, thanks for listening. If you want to learn more about us, head on over to vitalize.vc. You can also follow us on Twitter at vitalizevc. Or you can follow me on Twitter at JustinGordon212. Have a great day, and I'll talk to you in the next episode.